So we're, um, we're in just a one-off sermon uh, today, one-off sermon. We're not in a series. We'll kick it back up with a series next week. Um, but we're actually going to go back to an interesting passage of Scripture that is not normally taught this time of year, not normally preached this time of year. Um, Jesus ro- rises from the dead in, uh, in April. Um, you know, that's typically when it happens. Uh, and there's this story that comes immediately after the disciples rush to the tomb. They're greeted in Luke's gospel by a couple of guys, a couple of angels, and they say, Jesus isn't here, he's risen. And the disciples take off. Well, this passage of scripture is the very next verse. Um, and so we're going to use that. An interesting passage of scripture, again, for this time of year, but you'll see why in just a second. This is Luke 24, uh, verses 13 through 35. It's fairly lengthy, so buckle up. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called, the same day is on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer, should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he was opening the scriptures to us, that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and their companions gathered there. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. Pause. Okay. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Why would Ben start like this every week with a kind of scripture reading, prayer, and sermon? Um, we could get used to it in the church because it's something we've grown up with, but it's a pretty weird rhythm to, to kind of go through. So uh, what is the prayer about? The prayer is a helpful way for us to help um, kind of awaken to the Holy Spirit's presence and work among us. Uh, we go through most of our life kind of being inattentive to the work of the Spirit in our lives or the work of, our spirit, of the Spirit in our community. The prayer is a chance for us to kind of uh, wake up to that a little bit again. And the scripture in the sermon, this is a really, really, really old part of our faith. It's kind of a key component of something that's been passed down to us for generations. There could be a whole season that we spend. May, uh, we could spend just every single Sunday ever about what the scriptures are for us as a faith community. Um, but a kind of quick way to think about it is God uses the scriptures to speak to us in a unique way. We believe that the Holy Spirit not only had a hand in writing the scriptures, but also importantly has a hand in our reading of the scriptures and interpretation of the scriptures. And the sermon is a kind of working out of what God wants to say to us right now through these scriptures. Um, there's a ton of biblical examples of people preaching, Moses, Elijah, Paul, uh, I think Jesus does it once or twice. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really central part of, of our life together. It's a chance for us to kind of work out what God is trying to say to us. Okay. Thanks, Adam. So earlier this week, um, for those of you who are new, who may be your first time visitors, we have a giant building project next door. Uh, we're extending um, our, our uh, capacity um, so that we can better serve the community of Cary. And I was over there this week. It's not fully decorated yet. It's kind of open. It's not kind of open, kind of not open. Um, and I went over there, um, and I got lost because um, it's a new building. Uh, I had not been in there that much. Um, quite frankly, all the hallways look the same to me. Um, and if you don't really know the numbering system of how the rooms work, you can't really locate where you are. You're just on a, any other hallway. Um, there are multiple levels. They all kind of shift um, at one point in the building, and all of a sudden, build, like floor one becomes floor two. Um, you don't realize that. Um, so I got lost in the building. It'd be nice to have had a bird's eye view of what the building was all about. It would have been nice to have had a blueprint. I don't know if you've ever been lost in a building before, but it would be nice to have one of those maps like you have at the mall, where it at least gives you a little bit of a guide about where you are in the building and where you might be going. My favorite city uh, in the US is Chicago. Chicago has an easy trick for navigating the city. Find the lake. If you're at the lake, that's east. Everything else, you can work from there. There's guideposts. There's a marker. That's the way Chicago works. If you've been to D.C. before, you may know that D.C. is famous for their grid system. Um, in D.C., the, the roads that run north and south um, are numbers. The roads that go east and west are letters. Um, and so, except for the letter J, because the architect, uh, architect didn't like Chief Justice John Jay at the time, so there's no J Street. Um, in D.C., but then the diagonal roads are states, and so they go in a different direction, and so you can find your way around D.C. with letters and numbers and then the different quadrants, northwest, southwest, northeast, northwest. Sometimes blueprints are pretty important for our lives. Even if we've, even if we've been there and in that place for a long period of time, it's nice to pull out the blueprint. You and I, we know our homes really well. We know which 
floorboards creak. Uh, we know the roads that we live on. We know where the giant pothole is to avoid. And so you just kind of intuitively swerve, you know, when you get about 100 yards down that road to avoid the pothole. We know the lay of the land and we live in it, but sometimes we take it for granted. And it'd be nice to pull the blueprint out to see the space with new eyes. I remember the first time uh, someone told me that the little arrow underneath the gas light on my car points to which direction the gas tank is on. Would have been nice to see a blueprint before driving for 10 years. There's a little bit of things about, uh, there's, there's a lot of things that we just take for granted. And so this morning we're looking at blueprints. This week a co-worker of mine, I'm not going to name his name, but he's a short little hipster fella, um, <laughs> asked me to see the blueprints. And he sent me into a scramble because I couldn't remember where I had seen the, I know I had seen the blueprints somewhere, but I couldn't remember where I'd seen them. I looked back in the Old Testament and I looked through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and I looked and I saw what had been a former blueprint, but the, the corners had gone faded and it wasn't really a discernible blueprint anymore. It looks nothing like what the actual building is now. Look through the Psalms, look through Chronicles, and you see little glimpses of, of kind of what the material should look like in the building and what the, um, what the pattern scheme might be in the colors, but still there wasn't a blueprint. Look to the New Testament, but instead of finding blueprints in the New Testament, you find the picture of a finished product. In Acts, there's a few snapshots of the building, and in Colossians, there's a description of a couple of the rooms, but there's still... No blueprints, no bones. So just when I was about to go back to my little uh, hipster colleague, I, I went back to him and I, I had given up. I can't find the blueprints. And then I looked down in scripture and I found this old, what seemed to be dusty blueprint, kind of hand-drawn, hand-sketched. Not necessarily a list of formal instructions. There's no letterhead. It was just kind of loosely drawn. And it was on the back of a story, a story that I had read over and over again, The Road to Emmaus, this story. And on the back side was a hand-sketched blueprint. I began to read the story, and it said that on the first day of the week, two of them were together on a road to Emmaus, and in the midst, when they had gathered together, uh, they were met in that space by Jesus, who was alive and very much present among them. Flip over the back of the page, and there you can see the beginning, the first room of this blueprint, the gathering where people come together. Read a little bit further, and it says the disciples poured out their hearts to Jesus. They told him all of their troubles, what had been going on that week, all of the chaos in their lives, what had been breaking their hearts, and what they were wrestling with. And then they waited for a response from Jesus. That seems to be part of the blueprint as well. And then the story says that Jesus opened the scriptures to them. Jesus told them the stories of scripture and was able to connect the dots all the way from Moses, all the way from the Old Testament, all the way through the life of faith together to what was going on in the very moment, what was going on in present day. It was proof that this word of God was not just these words on a page they had studied, but alive and well among them. The second room of the blueprint, the proclamation of the word. In response to hearing this, the disciples then had a decision about what they should say and they do, so they invited Jesus to stay a little bit longer. 
Um, and we have that response, too, when we hear the proclamation. And it was then that they shared in a meal together around a table where Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, and gave it to all of them sitting around the table. The third section of the blueprint, our response in communion. Being united in Christ is, and reminded of Christ's presence among us. And then finally, the disciples uh, go out into the world. They went back to where their lives were with their other disciples, and they began to proclaim what they had seen. Jesus has risen, and they shared what they had experienced, the final piece of the blueprint, being sent back into the wor- world. Four parts, gathering, proclamation of word, response through communion, being sent back into the world. The blueprint of worship, not from an instruction manual, but from a story, a story that roots how we worship together as a people of faith. If you're you're looking for blueprints, if you're looking for strict instructions for worship, you're not going to find them in scripture. All we have is this roughly sketched blueprint that was inspired by the first time a couple of random guys were on a random road and Jesus met them where they were. They proclaimed, we've encountered the living God in Jesus Christ. He's risen, and they told all their friends. Years later, a guy named Justin Martyr would read that story and go, oh, that's a great idea, and model the first worship service and the way that the order of worship would go, and we've been using it ever since. That's what we do in our capital W worship, formal worship, the worship service. The only problem with this story that I have, I like it, I think it's great, um, but the only problem with it that I have in comparing it to what we do is that, you know, the, it's not the same circumstances. Those guys on the road to Emmaus didn't know what was coming. In this space, we know what's coming. We, we gather here and we've got a blueprint and we use a structure and we just know that God will meet us here and now through the reading of scripture, through the songs, through prayers, through communion. God moves among us and we praise God for it. But those two disciples didn't know what was coming. They, didn't, they certainly didn't expect to see Jesus on the road. They weren't in this formal capital W worship mindset. They were just two guys walking down the street. And that's where God met them. Jeffrey Wainwright is a professor over at Duke, and he describes worship as being the natural disposition between us, the created, and God, our creator. Worship, little w, lowercase worship, is our posture. And I think he's getting a little bit more to what the root meaning of the word is, which is to give worth to something, to give worth to God. And so maybe that's the real blueprint of this story. It's not the formal worship structure that we get, but it's the posture that these disciples have, ready at a moment's notice to encounter the living God that's among them. The road to Emmaus, those guys are in a lowercase w worship posture. Like these disciples, our natural disposition should be one in which we always give worth to God. We don't just limit it to what we do here on Sunday morning. We give God praise. We give God our prayers. We give God our tithes, our offerings. We worship together in community, no matter where we are. So in that case, W capital W worship is important, but it's the lowercase worship, the worshipful lives that's probably more important. 
This hour of worship is not just a place where we encounter God in our posture of worship. It's a rehearsal. It's a rehearsal for what we do the other 167 hours a week, for what we do every other day of the week, how we go about in our relationships, how we go about in breaking bread together. Everything we do should be one in which we give God praise. We worship God because we ascribe worth to God. We say, God, in our actions, we hope that you will see that you are worthy of it. We do it here this hour, but we should be doing it with our very lives, both here and now, ascribing God worth because God indeed is worthy. Amen.